please take a copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. It's good to see visitors in the room. We have been in Deuteronomy. We're preaching through Deuteronomy, and we're also preaching through Luke, and we're moving back to Luke today. We continue our verse-by-verse preaching through the book of Luke, and we're in the very beginning of Luke chapter 9. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and, and dig into the word together. Father, I pray that the psalmist prayed that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we acknowledge our dependence upon you And we just long to be taught of you. We long to sit at your feet and to hear your word to us today from Luke chapter 9. It's precious to us, Lord. It's sweet like honey. It's worth more than much, much fine gold. By your word, we are turned back to you. By your word, we see a Savior who is greater than all of our sin. By your word, we're equipped to follow you. By your word, we're changed little by little, day by day, more and more into the likeness, into the image of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, show us Christ. Equip us today. In his name we pray, amen. The ministry of Jesus Christ is nearly halfway done in Luke chapter 9. It's near the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry up north, and towards the end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus will turn his eyes south and set his eyes upon Jerusalem, and even in this chapter already, he will be heading to the cross. So chapter 9 then couldn't be more important. Chapter 9 in Luke is a massive transition in the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 9 in Luke is really a massive transition in all of redemptive history. A very important chapter. Remember in chapter 8, we were gazing upon the glory of the person of Christ. We saw his authority over drafts of wind. We saw his authority over demons, multiple demons. We saw his authority over disease. We saw his authority over even death itself. And all of those miracles in Luke chapter 8, we're raising the speculation about Christ. And, and there was lots of conversations about Christ happening in the hillsides all about Him. And there's much confusion about the person and work of Christ. And so, in, in chapter 9, Luke is really doing two specific things. Number one, he's clarifying, making it crystal clear 
the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what, who is He and what has He come to do? And also, because chapter 9 is such a transition chapter, we're, we're going to see a great focus on ministry with the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, the 12 disciples of Christ. If you think about it, up until Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been doing all of the ministry really Himself. It's been, He's been doing the preaching, He's been doing the healing, it's been a solitary ministry. He's been casting out all the demons, everything is done Himself. The disciples are with Him, yes, they're watching, they're learning, they're, they're learning by example. They've been selected already, they've been saved by Christ. They've sit at His feet. They're listening to Christ, learning from Him. They're watching Him. But now, they're no longer on the sidelines in Luke chapter 9. It's like like now they're in the game and they're being trained in the field. Specifically, training the 12 apostles. Because these 12 apostles will represent the faithful remnant of the Israel of God who will need to be equipped and trained to fulfill the great commission at the birth of the church. And so as we come to Luke chapter 9, all throughout this this chapter, be looking for those two themes, the identity of Christ and the training of the twelve. And I think as I read, you're going to see in our text this morning, both of those themes come together. Uh, in a very important way. So look at Luke chapter 9, find verse 1, and we're going to see as one commentator called this passage in 1 through 9, we're going to see, quotes, a dress rehearsal for the post-Pentecost gospel ministry of the twelve, end quotes. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 9, and he called the twelve together And he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, As you go out of that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So these are the twelve disciples. These are that select few that... 12, the apostles of Jesus Christ, who now get to enter in and participate directly in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, healing the sick, 
and preaching the gospel. Now, understand, and I need to say this, so just, just listen carefully. This is a unique event in redemptive history. And the apostles of Jesus Christ are a unique group in redemptive history at the beginning of the church, at the foundation of the church. An apostle, the word apostle means sent one, sent one. In fact, in the Jewish legal system, the word apostle had a very specific meaning in which a person was given the legal power to represent another. So an apostle is one's legal representative. They're sent and they represent the one from whom they sent. And in the New Testament, there were apostles of Jesus Christ and there were apostles of local churches. The apostles of local churches were sent out of the local churches. There's missionary. They were missionaries. In that sense, we have those kind of apostles today. But there were another kind of apostles. There were only 12 of those at the time, at the beginning, right here. And there were the apostles of Jesus Christ. They represented Jesus Christ. And to receive an apostle of Jesus Christ was to receive Christ himself. Now, in order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have seen the risen Christ. In order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ when he was incarnated on this earth. In order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have the ability given by him to confirm his mission by miraculous signs. And so the 12 here, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, were legal representatives of Christ. They were, they were as the man himself. They had his authority. They represented him. They were unique in authority. They were unique in honor. And Jesus affirmed this when he prophesied that in the coming kingdom, they would sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the book of Luke chapter 22 and verse 29. The honor and authority of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ uh, coincides with the astounding function that the apostles of Jesus Christ had in the church. They laid the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. They gave God's revelation to man. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5. They demonstrated the truth of that revelation by the exercising of their sign gifts. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And today the qualifications of an apostle of Jesus Christ cannot be met. For who has seen the, re the resurrected Christ? And we have moved on beyond the foundation of the church. The church has been built on the apostolic foundation over time. And the Apostle Paul explicitly tells us that he was the last eyewitness to Christ's resurrection and the last of the apostles of Jesus Christ to be appointed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5-9. through 9. So what I really like what the theologian Bach said about our passage. Quotes, the reader is to recognize that seeing and hearing the twelve is seeing and hearing Jesus. End quotes. The apostles of Jesus Christ. Unique in redemptive history, right? 
in this transition chapter and this transition from old covenant to new covenant in the birth of the church. And so, but I would like to say to you that as we look at this unique passage, we will see many principles for us about Christ-centered ministry. Many principles that can be applied, watch this, not just to pastors in the local churches, but principles that can be applied to every single man and woman and even child who is a Christian in this group who has been given a spiritual gift and is a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ and is called, therefore, to have a ministry, a Christ-centered ministry. All of us will be able to take these principles today and apply them to our lives. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, we are going to look at seven aspects of Christ-centered ministry. Seven aspects of Christ-centered ministry. This was life-changing for me, and I hope it will be for you as well. First, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-empowered. Is Christ-empowered. Verse 1, And He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. So the twelve... The twelve were exercising the authority and the power of Jesus Christ out on the field. It's incredible. They were representing Christ. This wasn't sort of a learned herbal healing ability that they had. This is the power of Christ working through them. They were given the power. That is, they were given the ability to cast out demons and to heal diseases. They were given the authority. That is, the right over the demons and the disease. And the authority and the right was not intrinsic in them. The authority and the right was Jesus Christ. They were representatives, legal representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were as the man himself. So when, it, when the apostles did these things and spoke this way, everyone knew this was the power of Jesus in them. And we'll see this in our passage today. Now, for us today, there is a principle here that I, I think is the very beginning, middle, and end of Christ-centered ministry. And it, and it is this. It is all the power of Christ in us by which we speak, by which we serve. It's all of Christ. Whether you are preaching, whether you are parenting, whether you are privately serving behind the scenes, all of that you would do for Christ in the context of His church, in the context of your family, in the context of the ministry He's given you as He equips you to go outside of this church, all of that is the only good thing things that are ever done are when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us, empowers us and accomplishes those good things. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that enables any of us to have any positive impact for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. It's all the power of Christ. I think we know this, but I don't think we live like this. Because if we really recognize that nothing good happens apart from His power in our ministries, in the context especially of this church, then our eyes would be completely off ourselves. 
we would depend upon Christ, and our eyes then would be on other people in serving them. You see, it's not just Christ's power and authority that we see in verse 1. We also see the compassion of Christ on display. Look, demon-possessed people are in bondage and hurting, right? People suffering with long-term diseases are miserable. And so what launches these men is the power of Christ and the compassion of Christ. In the parallel passage in Matthew, right before the 12 apostles are sent out, the text says in Matthew 9.36, Matthew 9.36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited and like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's time that you went out and ministered. So to be empowered by Christ is not just to have his power working through you, but it's to have Christ in you through the Spirit so that, it, so that it's, it's Him that we represent and it's actually His compassion that we're putting on display. Christ's power and Christ's compassion. That is essential for all of us for Christ-centered ministry. Second, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-sanctioned. Christ sanctioned. Verse 2, and he sent them. Christ sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now stop there. These 12 apostles, remember Christ prayed all night long to select these 12. And then he chose these 12 apostles and he trained them. He equipped them. He explained all the parables to them. He's teaching them, getting them ready. And now they're finally ready to go out and to actually participate. And he sends them out to minister. And the principle here for us all today is this. We are not self-appointed ministers of Jesus Christ. A Christ-centered ministry is a Christ-sanctioned ministry. It is. We know this is true for elders of the local church. We know that. That's pretty easy. Acts 13, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for their work to which I have called them. And we know that we're going to, Pastor Dan's going to preach on it. Pastors or elders feel this desire for ministry. They're to have the certain character. But they are to be, they are to be, they are to be identified by the church They are to be raised up by the church, and they are to be confirmed by the elders. That's ordination, a laying on of hands. They are commissioned for Christ-centered ministry. They're Christ-sanctioned. They're not renegades. They're not on their own. It's Christ giving them this ministry. So I would say this, Christian. You all are disciple-making disciples of Christ. You all have a Christ-centered ministry. You all have spiritual gift or gifts. Every single one of you. And you ought to be trying to figure it out. What is Christ 
called me to do? What has He set me apart to do? What has He sent me to do? What has He sanctioned me to do? What has He spiritually gifted me to do? And so in the context of the church, God has ordained the church body and her leaders, watch this, to help you, to to ascertain your spiritual gifts, to to discover them, to encourage you and equip you for the work of the ministry, a Christ-centered ministry. Every single one of us has a ministry. What is your ministry? And is Christ in it? Has He sanctioned you for it? How do you know? You've got pastors. You've got your brothers and sisters. Use your gifts. Find out what God has called you to do. You are not a lone ranger Christian. God is accomplishing His will in this world primarily through the local church. Discover your Christ-centered ministry. Because all of us have one. And we are not self-appointed. All of us who serve Christ, all of us who speak for Christ, all of us were sent by Christ and sanctioned by Christ. A Christ-centered ministry is a Christ-sanctioned ministry. Third, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-heralding. A Christ-centered ministry heralds, proclaims, the Christ. Verse 2, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to perform healing. Look at verse 6. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So, as we said, and we've been saying throughout this entire book, the point of the ministry of Christ was the message, the message of the gospel of, of the kingdom. The message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Christ were pictures of the gospel. The miracles of Christ authenticated the man and his message. Ultimately, the focus of Christ-centered ministry is a proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear me on this. This is not just for apostles. And this is not just for pastors. If you clean the toilets at Grace Community Bible Church... Ultimately, as you're doing that, you are doing that with a thought towards adorning the gospel in your service so that you might have an opportunity to speak the glories of Christ, to herald the gospel. It all ultimately comes down to to being a herald. Now, a herald is is one that doesn't make up his own opinions, but, but takes the message of another and heralds it. It's not his authority. It's not his or her message. It is the message of Christ. It is the message of the gospel. And that is the message that we proclaim. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so you get, in whatever ministry context you have, you get to be equipped here to to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can tell people, look, I know that you're, you're feeling guilty and you're feeling full of shame and that you're captive, held captive by your sin, but I know one. I know one who can set you free. I know that you are like me, blinded, right? Blinded and in the darkness, but there's one who can drop that veil and you can see the beauties of the glory of Christ and you can be set free and recognize 
that Jesus is the only one who can do this. You can have life eternal in Him. We get to open up our mouths in whatever context we have, outside and inside of this church. We do that for an opportunity to proclaim to herald the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true for every single one of us. You see it all throughout the New Testament that we must be ready and prepared to open up our mouths and proclaim Christ. I'll just tell you that every ministry from the bottom up in this church, right, that God's called you to, you're feeling gifted to, and we're affirming that and equipping you for that, all of that starts with the preaching of the Word of God, and that, this Word of God ought to trickle down all the way down to the grassroots, right, and fuel everything that we do, connected to the Word. We're being equipped to serve in order that we might speak. J.C. Ryle said this about preaching, quotes, preaching is in fact God's chosen instrument for doing good to souls. By it, sinners are converted, inquirers led on, and saints built up. A preaching ministry is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of a visible church. The pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won, and no church has ever done much for the advancement of true religion in which the pulpit has been neglected. In quotes. Fourth, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-dependent. Is Christ-dependent. You know, watch this. This is interesting. Verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Strange instructions to give the twelve apostles going out. Back in those days, and in our days too, traveling ministers could charge a whole lot for their work. Imagine being born blind. What would you give to see? Jesus says in other passage, on this passage, freely you have received, freely give. Don't charge them. A Christ-centered ministry is not about the money. This is interesting. Go out. Don't take a, a fanny pack right, where you can collect the money for all your healing, stuff it in there, take the money out, pay your way for your nice hotel, for your ministry. In fact, don't even take bread or food to eat. In fact, don't take any cash. Just have one change of clothes. It's not how... I like to pack for trips. My wife knows it. I've got the spreadsheet of the 150 things I'm going to bring, and I triple check it. I'm proactive. When I traveled to Sierra Leone with Pastor Dan a few years ago, I was all nervous, and he just, you know, I just kind of leashed myself to Pastor Dan, and he drug me everywhere I needed to go. But I needed to have everything in place. This is not how it went for these men. I don't think this means we shouldn't plan for ministry trips, but this is a unique group of men 
in a unique time in history who are learning a unique lesson. And what is that lesson that they would need as they birth the church? Here is that lesson. God will supply. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust the Heavenly Father to provide every step of the way. And that provision, much of the time, Jesus would teach them, we're going to come from the hands of God's people. Christ-centered ministry is ultimately dependent upon God. Don't take a staff. Rely on God for strength. Don't take supplies. Rely on God for provision. The principle is this. If God calls you to a certain ministry for all of us, He will provide everything you need for it. The strength and supply. So depend upon Him. Walk by faith and not by sight. For the pastors out there listening to this, this is a call to watch your heart for greediness. For greediness. One of my professors in seminary used to say, do not put a price tag on your ministry. Trust God for provision and be concerned about faithfulness. Don't worry about success. Focus on sanctification and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I don't know how in the world you principalize for today any sort of health, wealth, and prosperity, money-making ministry expedition from this text. I don't know how it's even possible. No, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-dependent. And when depend, now listen, when dependent upon Christ, day by day, step by step in our ministries, when we're dependent on Christ for daily bread, what that leads to is this attitude of dependence that, that prays, oh, give me my daily bread. It leads to trusting God, and trusting God in dependence leads to prayer. And so a Christ-centered ministry whether it's parenting, um, your marriage, any of the ministries at Grace Community Bible Church, teaching Sunday school, working in the nursery, pastoral ministry, deacon ministry, cross-cultural church planting ministry, it's all the same in this. It must be God. It must be His strength, and we must depend upon Him in prayer. He's our strength. He's our supply. And this drives us to our knees. This brings us into relationship. This causes us to depend. And this makes us thankful, even at this church. Not just when we get a church building, but for the everyday little blessings of His provision. We're grateful for how He has provided and how He has strengthened us for that one more toilet that we cleaned. He strengthened us behind the scenes to glorify Him and we give Him praise that every good gift every day comes from above. And that is the focus of Christ-centered ministry. It's Christ-dependent. And closely related is number five. A Christ-centered ministry is christ 
contented. I don't know how better to say that. You could say Christ satisfied, I suppose. Christ contented. You say, where do I get this from the text? It's in verse 4. So look at verse 4. So don't take anything for your journey like like we just read in verse 3. Now, as you're traveling, right, verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Ouch. Meditate on that for a while. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. What do I mean? Well, in God's providence, those 12 apostles would travel and God would bring them to a home to stay in, in His providence. Whatever home that they first arrived at, that's where they were to stay until the end of their ministry. Interesting. I don't know what I would have done if I was one of the apostles, if I maybe look from a distance to kind of, because if I arrive there, then I'm, it's a done deal. Let me check out the surroundings a little bit. See how many cows or this or that, chickens. I don't know. Maybe that you would come to a humble home, not a great bed, not really great food offered. Not a fancy place, but a place that God has provided in His providence. You are to stay there content in Christ. Contented with God's leading in the exercise of your ministry. You know, this is not very accommodating. You're not very nice. The food isn't very good. I'm going to find a different house to stay in. I'm a big wig apostle of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. One of the twelve. When I go on vacations and when I travel, I don't use this model. I don't like Motel 6. Ask me about my Motel 6 experience in Florida. Horrible. I like the Marriott. I'm going with that. But in that day, there were no hotels, and they were dependent on people, upon the generosity of those who received them, who received their ministry. They were to come in. Those who received them, the generosity of the people of God. And the apostles were to trust God in the direction of that, for their comfort. They were to trust God's providence. They were to learn something They were to learn contentment. They would need to learn this lesson. At the birth of the church, if if they were going to explode in gospel ministry through the Spirit, when the Spirit would come and take the gospel to the nations in the birth of the church, they were going to need to learn to be dependent upon Christ and to be content in Christ. In the time of the English church, Kent Hughes notes in the 18th and 19th centuries that pastorates, pastorates were called livings. It was all about how many pounds per year you would make. The pastors had nice estates, vintage wine in their cellars, 
But as Kent Hughes says, they knew little of their Bibles. And Kent Hughes goes on to say, quotes, comfort seekers, comfort seekers have never done anything for Christ and His kingdom. A committed life is an uncomfortable life. It is sometimes a tired life too because it will put itself out for others. It is often inconvenient, even taken advantage of, in quotes. That is all of you in your Christ-centered ministry. That is all we often feel. And so whatever ministry that has been given to you from God, be learned to be satisfied in God and to be content with His direction and provision in that ministry. You must learn contentment. Stay at the first house in which you come. It is God who will provide. Andrew, you read Paul. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Don't turn there. But this is exactly what this apostle, the last of the apostles, had learned. He's rotting in jail at the time. And he says, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's so thankful. He's gotten a gift from Epaphroditus to provide for his needs from the local churches. But he's trying to say, I'm trying to be thankful for the gift, but I just also want you to know I don't really need it. I'm content in Christ. I've learned contentment. I'm more concerned that and thrilled that you gave the gift, which means you're growing and dependent in Christ, and you're, you're growing in Christ. That's my great joy. I, I really could take it or leave it that I'm rotting in, in, in prison. God's got this. That's what he's saying. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. You've learned it. Of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I'm so glad you're growing, and I am thankful for the gift. And I want you to know, Philippians, that my God will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. A Christ-centered ministry is Christ-contented. Sixth, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-emboldened. Or you could say bold about Christ, if you like that better. Christ emboldened. Verse 5. And as for those who do not receive you, go into the house, first one you come to, they're not having it. As you go out from that city, remember they're preaching. There's a message behind verse 5. There's a message of the kingdom. There's a message of the gospel of repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as for those who do not receive you in that ministry, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So if the twelve don't get a positive response to the message, they're to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against the people who have rejected the good news of the gospel. So there's a boldness. There's a boldness 
that is a part of Christ-centered ministry. Shaking off the dust off the feet in that culture, as one scholar says, here's what it means in that culture, was, quotes, was done by Jews upon leaving pagan territory to shake off uncleanness from their feet, end quotes. And so the point here is if you reject the kingdom message, again, we're not in that culture, but here's the point, it's serious business to reject the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus saves sinners, if you reject that, you are standing under the judgment. As the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, And inasmuch as is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, now catch this. A Christ-centered ministry is not just preaching the good news of Jesus and the love of God and Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God. There's also a preaching of you must receive this. And if you don't receive this, you're under the judgment of God. There's admonishment, shaking the dust off. There's rebuke. There's a boldness of shaking the dust off your feet. It includes this ministry, a Christ-centered ministry, includes bringing people to a point of decision, either rejection or receiving, and showing them just how much it depends upon How much is at stake for receiving the good news of Jesus Christ? It is bold to proclaim the love of God in Christ, the mercy to be found in Christ. But it is the righteousness of God, it is the judgment of God against sin that it is bold to proclaim that sin is real and there's judgment coming. You know, this is probably why, as I reflected on it, why I appreciated John MacArthur's open letter to to Gavin Newsom, the governor in California, so much. You see, Governor Newsom blasphemed Christ by putting up billboards around California that, that quoted Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark in order to, to support the practice of killing babies in abortion. And MacArthur said, and he said, he crossed the line. And so John MacArthur, in his letter, I think, directly and lovingly called Newsom to either reject or receive the gospel. He did. He showed him that judgment was coming if he didn't repent, and he called him to come to Christ and to be saved. Did he write this letter every day of the week? No. A line was drawn, and there's a boldness. There's an emboldness in Christ-centered ministry, all of it. There's a boldness for Christ. If they don't receive you into their home, shake the dust off your feet. And so, with those instructions, the apostles of Christ obeyed Christ in verse 6. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, how do you know if you're on the right track in your Christ-centered ministry? How do we know at Grace Community Bible Church if you or I or we 
right? Have a Christ-centered ministry. Well, I think our last point will answer that question. Finally, a Christ-centered ministry is Christ-focused. I'm going to have to explain that. Just write it down and listen carefully. Christ-focused. Look at verse 7. The text seems to change to something else. It is not changing. Listen carefully. Verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. So Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee, he's an evil guy. He was the ruler of Galilee during the time of Jesus' entire ministry. He's the one who had John the Baptist killed recently. It's in his mind, it's on his heart. And now the ministry of the apostles is going around. And, he's, and the text says, he heard of all that was happening, and in that context, all that was happening through the apostles. The training of the twelve apostles, preaching and healing, is greatly perplexed. What is he perplexed about? Who is he perplexed about? Well, keep reading. Well, because, greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And so he was perplexed as he goes on in verse 9. Here it said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? Who did he hear them from? The apostles. Was Herod enamored with Peter? Was Herod enamored by John? No, no. Herod was enamored and scared with a guilty conscience about the person, the glorious person, the astounding person that he was hearing about in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was freaked out about the message of repentance from sin. He knew he had slaughtered this man and he had a guilty conscience. And his focus was on who? Christ. And every Christ-centered ministry is not about us. All of the spotlight, all of the focus goes directly upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that they are asking, who is this man that I have to do? This is what I want you to see about the apostles of Jesus Christ who have this Christ-centered ministry. The whole response to their Christ-centered ministry is a crisis about Christ. A Christ-centered ministry causes people to think about Jesus and ask questions about Him. A Christ-centered ministry brings people to the crossroads of decision about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Herod says in verse 9, I myself had John beheaded. It can't be John the Baptist. I cut his head off. I don't think it's, maybe they're saying it might be Elijah who was prophesied in the book of Malachi, or maybe one of the prophets who have risen from the dead. But I feel like he's coming for me. Who is this man? 
the disciples. This is the whole point. Jesus asked them in the next passage after the feeding of the 5,000, hey, who are people saying that I am? No, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? The whole point of chapter 9, we have to come to a decision about who Jesus is. And if you have a Christ-centered ministry, it is not about you at all. It is about Jesus Christ. And how do you know if you're on track with that? When they're not talking about you. When they're talking and dealing with the Lord of glory. With Jesus Christ. Who is He? Why has He come? And you've got to choose. You either respond or reject. You either receive or reject the Son of Man. You can't stand on the fence. Herod stood on the fence. And it would seem that he rejected the Christ even, on the, even at the last day at the cross of Calvary as he interacted with Jesus Christ. I like what MacArthur says. The question of who is this man, that question of the identity of Jesus is the most important one ever asked and ever answered. The response of each person gives to that question will determine his or her eternal destiny in heaven or hell. End quotes. Who do you say that he is? Who is he? Brothers and sisters, if your ministry is Christ-focused, the spotlight is on Jesus and him alone. And so I'm so thankful for this portrayal of Christ-centered ministry. It's not just for the apostles of Jesus Christ in that transition time. It's not just for pastors of local churches. It is for pastors. But it's for all of us who name the name of Christ, parents of Christian families, participants of the local church of every age, for we are all disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. You have a gift. You have a ministry. What is it? so exciting that we have a Christ-centered ministry. Are you doing your part to fulfill the Great Commission? Because all of us have a Christ-centered ministry. A ministry that is empowered by Christ, sanctioned by Christ, proclaims only Christ, depends upon Christ, is content with only Christ, is bold about Christ, and brings the focus upon Jesus Christ. And how do you know if you're on track? People are coming to you and saying, Who is he? Who is this one of whom you speak? Who is Jesus Christ? Herod never settled that question. Have you settled that question? One pastor said, Happy are they who have found the only cure for a guilty conscience, a bad conscience. Nothing will ever heal it but the blood of Christ. Christ.